Hello, and welcome back to Proofing and Lies. This is Elle Rochford, amateur baker, professional sociologist. And I'm Andrew Shriver. I'm a public defender. And today we have returning one of our favorite guests. Yes, one of the best guys we know. Tom Lecoq is back to talk about the other kind of libel. Uh, So we had him on a while ago to talk about the medieval roots of QAnon, and we talked a lot about blood libel. Uh, So now we're going to talk about the other kind of libel. Just regular old libel. Um, I missed out on this one as well, unfortunately. Uh, I just had uh, some medical procedures done. Everything is good. I'm very happy to say, but I was not able, uh, unfortunately, to make this interview. So He had to have his adrenochrome removed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, so he, he was not able to weigh in on the interview, but he has heard lot, lots about it since. Yeah. So I would say Tom's catchphrase uh, is, bad ideas never die. Yes. So we thought for our baked good this week, we would bring back what we did the last time he was on. Mm-hmm. So last time around, we did a few kinds of cookies, uh, and so this time we thought we would do a new uh, evolution of the cookie, a new iteration. Uh, it's back, and it's weirder. No, it's just uh, ice cream cookie sandwiches. Yes, we uh, homemade some ice cream, some vanilla ice cream. Mm-hmm. Uh- Technically frozen custard. I would get flack from my family if I did not point out it is custard technically. Sure. I'm not 100% clear on the difference, but... It has um, to do with eggs. Sure. Uh, in any event, it's delicious. It's a, just a good little vanilla ice cream. Um, some homemade cookies uh, surrounding it. And, um, yeah, I don't know, they're, they're delicious. I, yeah, it is like the perfect combination of like milk and cookies. Mm-hmm. So we just did vanilla ice cream. And I, I will say the cookies were homemade. They were not homemade by me. We received some beautiful cookies from Andrew's mom. Yeah, they're Heath Bar cookies. They're so good. They're so good. And then at a local farmer's market, there was someone selling homemade cookies, and he had like 12 different kinds of cookie. Yeah. So we found ourselves with about five dozen cookies in our home. Yes. Uh, And so I thought this would be a great way to use them. Uh, I gave some away as gifts. And even though it's fall, it is 80 degrees right now. So it was nice to have a little ice cream snack. Yeah, it was. And she's looking at me like it's my fault. There are five dozen cookies here. It is, but you don't I don't have have to to look at you? Yeah, you don't have to blame me. Well, (laughs) the listeners wouldn't have known. It's not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose not. Well, we are talking about some problems today, uh, this week. We are talking to Tom about uh, some of the negative attention he's received for uh, his work on QAnon, uh, but also just speaking out about mass mandates. And we talk more broadly about what it means to be a public academic or just to be a public person in general. Yeah. Uh, and increasingly, we're all public, right? Um, yes. Most of us, many of us have Twitter accounts. We have social media profiles, and we're talking about things we're passionate about, uh, and sometimes that means we attract trolls. Well, and I think that's especially true um, given how, I'll say, polarizing uh, COVID measures have been, and how determined everybody, um, especially everyone on the anti-vax, anti-mask side of things, has become to turn even the smallest community meeting or public meeting into a all-hands-on-deck social media battleground um, is, is a little concerning. So I think, I think Tom has had an experience similar to, although I think, uh, I don't know, greater than or, or certainly an exacerbated one, but a version of, of what a lot of people in a lot of different communities, especially smaller communities, especially more Republican-leaning communities, have gone through trying to keep their kids safe at school or themselves Mm -hmm. safe at work or or whatever and so it's um it's a bit daunting but but uh tom i will say has has, seems to be navigating through it with with a great degree of grace and humor which um is difficult to do he certainly is an exceptional person uh i i love having him on he's always welcome back Uh, So we were excited when he wanted to uh, come back onto the pod and talk a little bit about what he's been doing and what he's been going through. Uh, And at the end, we get to talk a little bit about his newer publications, which involve medieval conspiracy theories and video gaming. So he does have some fun stuff going on, too. Yeah, so 
I'm as excited to listen to it as uh, you guys are. (laughs) All right. Well, invest in an ice cream maker and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Hello and welcome back to Proofing and Lies. And this is a welcome back to our guest today, too. This is Professor Thomas Lecoq of Grandview University. So you've had a busy couple of months since you were on. Just a little bit. Uh, Enjoying the, the, you know, month uh, 19 of March 2020. We're really having a grand time with it. There's been some recent, I guess, press around you. I think that press might be generous. So you came on before and we talked a little bit about blood libel. Uh, So I guess this would be kind of the other kind of libel. Um, So, Uh, yeah. Do you you want to kind of jump in and explain what's been going on? Absolutely. So uh, last time I was on, we were talking about QAnon and, you know, wonder upon wonders, QAnon won't die. Uh, So we we are still effectively talking about QAnon. Um, For people who may have been paying attention to local elections and certainly local elections around school boards, there have been numerous instances across the country of fairly aggressive groups of people showing up at school board meetings, protesting them, um, making various threats to school board members, engaging in targeted harassment campaigns with the goal of driving people out of school boards, getting them not to run for your election, and then putting their own candidates in place. And this has all been taking kind of root within not just kind of just QAnon spaces, um, but QAnon weaponizing anti-mask rhetoric across the country to attack school boards in an effort to not only take control of really important local institutions, but to make public schools less safe. Um, These same movements are taking place in the same conversations like critical race theory, and these two movements work hand in hand. So we have school board elections coming up in my town in Iowa uh, in November, and because of a federal judge's issuing a uh, temporary injunction over the mask mandate ban that my state has and that unfortunately several states have, um, our school board was meeting to vote on, on whether or not to impose universal masking requirements in our Ankeny school district. So they had a meeting, um, I think 45 people signed up to speak before the actual meeting and votes. We had like a, a two hour public commentary period beforehand and then the vote. Um, it, it unfortunately, the meeting made news because it was a particularly raucous gathering. Uh, the crowd of people there in opposition to masking was very vocal throughout including when other people were speaking and running over time. Um, At one point, one of the members uh, threatened to stalk the school board to their houses. Uh, That was on camera. Um, Multiple obscenities were launched. It was fun sitting down. The people who would walk by the aisles and mutter kind of insults under their breath at the section where those of us were wearing masks. All of the normal things just ramped up to the kind of worst logical extent. Um, And they televised the entire thing so that any of us who actually spoke were recorded on YouTube. and, And that's what it is. And then later in that week, a local right-wing blog, local to the state of Iowa, began running short, I mean, really short semi-journalistic attack pieces on people who spoke, especially teachers. I I had the the dubious distinction of being one of the people who had these things written, which were effectively um, cutting and pasting tweets uh, and giving them more aggressive headlines to get people mad at me to then complain to my place of work presumably things like that. Um, They did this to at least one other public school teacher. um, And now this week they've moved on to other targets within the same kind of general thing. But it was my my first experience with uh, getting getting that kind of press, the uh, short out of context uh, Twitter attack kind of way. It's It's been a learning experience. Yeah, I can only imagine. I think this has become increasingly common uh for for teachers at at all levels but yeah it's it's always wild every time it happens i'm kind of surprised and i think uh studying critical race theory it is um a little nerve-wracking how quick to mobilize some of these groups are so what's the what's the recourse have you changed like your public speaking or teaching so the fun thing is that their only commentary is on my public discourse on my 
personal Twitter account, which does not mention my place of employment, doesn't link to it at all. And also, of course, says view zone, et cetera, the standard disclaimer on off Twitter. So what, of course, the author of these pieces did was like, let's look up where this guy works and let's make sure that we're tagging his place of work into every single thing. Um, I'm tenured. It's a private institution. Uh, this is my personal account. This is First Amendment rights, which, which is always fun because, of course, First Amendment gets screamed without kind of ever any kind of explanation by the same people attacking me. Part that I find, of course, particularly amusing is that the day of the final one of these posts, they also had a post whose title is, of course, cancel culture is a threat to everyone by the Institute for Free Speech. And so, of course, none of this is actually about truth. None of this is about dialogue. None of this is about, it does, and, I, and I'm sure the person would deny that he's trying to get fired. This is just explaining to the world, as I repeatedly emphasize, you know, where this person teaches so that you can go and, and harass them there, that, you know, this is just, this is information. Um, of course, we know that that's not the case, right? That that's, this is part of a weaponization of both weaponizing the rhetoric of freedom of speech, so that when you say things, your particular grouping says things, it should be protected, but only when you say things, not the other group, right? And so, so the, the amusing thing is that like having that kind of very, very clear and aggressive juxtaposition, like mean professor says mean words on his private account, you should know these things, and especially where he works, followed immediately by cancel culture is the worst thing that's ever happened to America. Um, obviously, like it feels like there could be a cognitive dissonance, but there's very much not, because this falls within the broader rhetoric of like true Americans, right? Who do these rights apply to? Well, it's obviously not a universal set of rights. It applies to the people who are the good people, the real Americans, the, the people who are truly being oppressed, who are, you know, not the people we're attacking. I feel like there's, there's an intrinsic leak there to the way QAnon is rebranding itself as Patriot, right? You don't see a lot of the, the these, all of these same players who were already in the, in the QAnon sphere are not calling themselves QAnon. I say that one, the person who at the Ankeny meeting was threatening to stock the school board members literally has a van um, without legal license plates on. But that's the other thing with um, where we go one, we go all on the front and literally a giant Q on the back. So he's not very subtle about it. Also until he succumbed to a city ordinance had uh, Trump JFK junior flags in his backyard. So some of them are just QAnon. Many of them have rebranded themselves as patriots, which helps in the avoidance of cognitive dissonance. We're the real Americans, the others are the enemy. Well, this sounds really similar to what was happening on January 6th, where you have a group of people who say they are, they're for the state, they're for the government, they're for the police, then attacking the state and the government and actual police officers. But the logic they have to subscribe to is that they are the state and anyone against them is not the state, even if the person against them is the actual president of the United States. So you really have found a great fan club. Well, you know, if you're going to be known by your enemies, um, it, it's also amusing that you, know, you bring up January 6th, the two most prominent voices in the organized anti-mask debate in Ankeny were both at the Capitol on January 6th. As far as we know, they didn't enter, but we have, I mean, they've kept up all of their TikToks from the crowd outside. There's at least one other person who was in the crowd, um, who I think is affectionately called, affectionately called Tractor Guy, uh, who is also keeps posing with all of the various elected officials who are running for office here. No one, no one seems to have a problem with this. It, it is very much the same group. Like they're, they're not covering their tracks because why would they, right? Covering your tracks implies that you either are on the defensive for whatever reason, or you feel like there's some people should know. And they very much want people to know that this is what they're doing because this is part of the broader quote unquote patriot grouping that they're part of now. But it is, it is this kind of eternal dichotomy that there is a real America and pay no attention to what that means in terms of like the demographics and where the actual population centers are and, and like any of the actual facts that might dispute the notion of real Americans being um, middle-class suburban white Iowans, right? We're gonna, we're gonna ignore all of that to use this weaponized rhetoric to say that, well, no, when I do these things, these freedoms are mine because I am the real America and they're not yours because you're the enemy. It's not like it's not like the McCarthy hearings, right? There is no government organization that's actually impinging upon it. But it is the same kind of logic that underpins things like the McCarthy hearings or any of these other kind of, you know, hysterical ingroupings where you find and that find or create imaginary enemies to justify your abuses. Let's let's be honest, it's, it could be much worse. By and large, 
given the fact that it's a group that has visibly and vocally aligned themselves with essentially seditionists and made sure to maintain that allegiance despite what you might think is like a degree of shame of trying to overthrow the government, there are limits to the reach of their outrage and the potency among non-seditionists of their complaint. But that doesn't stop the initial ability to write, this is the internet, right? You can create vast amounts of outrage on perfect strangers to then harass people wherever they are because the internet. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this because obviously you kind of your work is about, you know, medieval death cults. And what do we do with these modern death cults? Um, the medieval answer is one I'm not going to give. Um, I mean, the problem is, is that none of these ideas ever die. Right. So the medieval death cults in some ways feel more comfortable than the modern ones because you have that kind of distance. Right. And you can feel very comfortable with the idea of like, well, we've evolved since then and we would never do that and pay no attention to all of the churches that are still using this rhetoric and all of the kind of medieval ideas useful for violence that, that are still doing these things. And the problem is, of course, all of this is still there. None of these ideas ever die. The rhetoric changes, but bad ideas don't die. And the problem is there's not much you can do about ideas, right? Every time people try to crush ideas, it's usually through repressive violence, and that is worse. That's worse. We don't want that. The problem is that we do a very bad job of marginalizing these ideas in society and figuring out and talking honestly about why people have these ideas, right? Um, and for me, it's, you know, I am frustrated about the reaction to the pandemic on a societal level. I am mad about the people who, you know, spend their time screaming, uh, you know, screaming insults and threatening violence or stalking against people who want their uh, public safety measures. But I also understand like, this is a trauma response, right? We are going through a unprecedented crisis because no one, you know, most of us do not remember the Spanish flu because we weren't alive during the Spanish flu the last time we had a worldwide pandemic that seemed to, you know, hit this level of potency and kind of mass fear. Um, so the way people are reacting is trauma-based. And I want that to make me more empathetic, right? I, I, want, I want that to be something that allows me to understand and forgive people. And that's, that's a whole other thing. But it's also people react in a variety of ways. Some of us are increasingly becoming anxious, paranoid wrecks and avoiding other humans. That doesn't actually, unfortunately, feel that, that you know, wrong given given the spread of the pandemic. Um, some people are as aggressively as possible trying to force a return to normalcy, even though things are not normal because they cannot deal with the contemporary moment. I completely understand that issue if they would do it in a fashion designed to get other people sick and increase the death toll of this already worldwide pandemic, right? So in moments of crisis, and not just like personal crisis, but like society, wide crisis, apocalyptic movements spark back up, right? Um, I think the potency of QAnon is, is partially because of social media, right? I think we have to, the technology allows weird, dangerous, scary ideas to spread much more quickly than they would otherwise. But I don't think if people weren't already feeling a crisis of American identity and uh, the continued economic collapse of the 21st century for all of us, we're enjoying this moment too, aren't we? Um, I don't think people would be as prone to adopting conspiracy theories if things weren't already going badly. And when you take all of this pre-existing problem and the conspiratorial overlay and the kind of violent ideology that's right there, then you throw us into the pandemic and now we're on the other side. I understand why people are reacting in a variety of effectively extremist ways. It doesn't excuse it, but it is understandable. Well, I often wonder this about the pandemic. If QAnon would have grown outside the U.S. borders, if, if we hadn't had a pandemic, and obviously there's no real way to test this, but it seems like QAnon has really proliferated outside the U.S., even though it has been rooted so deeply to U.S. politics. And it seems not great, <laughs> Uh, that it's gone both international and deeply local. Uh, you know, the number of school board, school boards that are now um, minority QAnon members uh, or majority QAnon members is, is really alarming. 
And I mean, it should be alarming, right? This is exactly what we want to avoid uh, at all of society because, you know, it's it's not about it's not about the political affiliations. It's about the blatant, violent, false reality that its adherents have adopted. Um, and yeah, this is something that you'd like to have avoid everywhere. I, I wonder. It's again, it, it's unfortunately the economic problems of the United States are not limited to the United States. Uh, and so you already have within the context of, of economic issues and also, let's be very clear, the racism of the first world uh, and the way that every time you have economic issues, people latch on very quickly to bizarre ideas that the jobs are being taken by immigrants as opposed to a general crisis of, uh, of contemporary society and the way we value you know, jobs versus shareholder profits. Not. You throw into this all of the rest of the mess. Yeah, it's, it's everywhere. There are, I mean, conspiracy theorists are worldwide already, their own local variations. There are anti-government movements everywhere for a variety of reasons that already have their own kind of things. And when you combine that with then lockdowns and mask mandates and vaccine mandates, all of which are designed to keep you alive, but suck, right? None of us want to be wearing masks. We all like the pandemic to be over. We'd like to be moving on with our lives. Like all these things suck, even if they're necessary. You just have a perfect mix for people who are stuck at home on their computers to um, make really dangerous leaps. I would, what I'd really love to know is if there are parallels outside of Euro-American countries that are also still grappling with the legacy of empire and a fixed kind of sociocultural model of uh, individual reliance and personal wealth and are dealing badly with the kind of class structures internally and dealing incredibly badly with the deep racial tensions within these post-imperial states. Post-imperial, these are all still imperial states. I don't know the answer to that, but I would be fascinated to know if these, if these things are really only spreading in these places or if it's become worldwide. Oh, that's a fascinating research question. As someone who studies social movements, maybe I will pen that one down for later. Please do. I would love to read it. <laughs> it is It is really interesting how deeply rooted I think QAnon is to, to increasing awareness of the U.S. as an imperialist kind of force in the world. You know, there are people who have always recognized it as such. And I think Americans, I should clarify, particularly white Americans, are being introduced to this idea. And uh, the way people are responding to that has been fascinating. But it would be interesting to compare. I know QAnon has spread to England, at least, um, but I don't know what, you know, Australia and Japan are doing. I feel like I've read that that QAnon-like ideas have spread to Ireland. Um, France already has its native fascist movement that is everywhere in the kind of, um, not Maiojan, Maiojan is, is Tour de France, but the, the Yellow Jackets movement. Uh, and its new iterations, like the protests against vaccine mandates, against um, vaccine passports and things like that, which is always an insane term, right? Vaccine, you have a vaccination record. We all have a vaccination record. So don't, we don't need new terms for it. But I, these these kind of movements are already in France, which already has its own internal tensions. And so I, mean, I think a lot of it is that it's a movement that makes it really easy to latch onto the already pre-existing socio-political problems in your country uh, alongside, you know, all other stuff that's that's QAnon and then map on similar conspiracy theories to it because essentially makes it makes it seem like we're actually winning right our our own particular faction in this culture war we can't let go and cannot adapt to we are winning it's not that it's not that we're the minority view it's that the deep state ish stuff has has you know taken over the government and like we're the we're the true we're the true heirs of our glorious noble traditions and someday we shall overthrow them because we're the secret minority who are all following an 8chan internet meme lord to glory. Because that makes sense. Oh, uh, it's so troubling. It's, well, have you noticed that like most people don't talk about Q anymore? I have noticed that. I've noticed a lot more people popping up, kind of interpreting things, but definitely moving away from like the Q model. And even moving away from from Trump or the idea that Trump was ever going to be reinstated. So it is really fascinating the way that the goalpost will shift to actually know that was never going to happen. That was just a misinterpretation. But I mean, I think you see this in, in every cult or every group that predicts anything. Right. Well, actually, no, is the math was wrong on that apocalypse. It's this next one. 
which which is by design, right? You want to make sure that your prophecies never actually fail and you can keep spinning them off and then just never talk about them anymore, right? Because the easy thing is like, well, no, this was a misinterpretation. We're going to move on now. And then you just never mention it again. You just, you, you never bring up that particular interpretation. You move on. You, because the willingness to reject observed reality is part of it, right? It becomes very easy to sell the mythos that, you know, oh no, the prophecies are still correct. Or like the secret information being fed to us is still correct. Or this particular one was misinformation. We must be getting close. Clearly the deep state is trying to mess with us. And then you just, you stop talking about it. And the part that's, that's, interesting is that like you still are having these uh, kind of meetings of these groups they're all the exact same members who just change the name of what they're doing we're not going to affiliate ourselves with q even though we believe all of the same things and we're all of the same people and we're dealing with events all in the same way we're just going to rename ourselves and then we're never going to talk about it again um so i mean i think the big ones nowadays that i i have seen kind of publicized are things like the um forgotten country patriot roundup uh, and the Patriot Roundup part is the important part because it's, again, we're no longer QAnon, we're Patriots. That's all it is. Let's let's ignore all of the other stuff and neglect the fact that, you know, until the election, we were all going by Q something on Twitter or Telegram or whatever other social media we were spreading stuff. And now we're doing another thing. It is religion-based. It's real America-based. It is Patriot, which is a much easier rebranding. Right, because how can you not like being a patriot um, unless you have really strong feelings about football, I guess. You are re reusing this language to put the most positive spin on it. But at the same time, given their pre-existing rhetoric and the connotations with when we talk patriot, you're drawing onto a revolutionary kind of background. That revolutionary part doesn't fill me with a huge amount of, co of confidence when QAnon's heart is a partisan murder conspiracy theory with a great psychological event where you kill all of your opponents at the end. And in that, I suppose it's a more honest accounting of the, the American revolution than some, given what happened to the loyalists. Uh, but of course, they don't know them. They don't care, right? That's, that's not the point. It's the imagery of violent revolution. I have seen a bunch of like Gadsden flags up um, in, in town driving by more than we were there before. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing a bunch more 1776 ones up around. I'm sure they're already out. I've probably just not noticed them or like meandered off into thinking about the colonial America class I teach. But this kind of rhetoric is very much the, you know, the tree of liberty has to be watered with the blood of patriots kind of rhetoric, which is always taken out of context, is the advocating again for violent revolution. And I think we can't discount that, like, whether or not people are saying that out loud right now, because I think some of them may be concerned about the legal implications since people are actually getting arrested and actually going to trial. Um, and no one seems to have shown up in D.C. to try to protest for the freedom of the January 6th. I mean, it was a very, very small group. I don't think people have let go the idea of taking the election if you don't win them. I think it's the love to see if we win the win this next band of elections and then choose from there. I hope I'm wrong on that. Very much hope I'm wrong on that. Hopefully this will, you know, quietly die its its natural death. But again, I study apocalyptic movements professionally. They just keep coming. Well, and I think now that uh, now that my family and I are all vaccinated, we've been making some trips to see each other and driving through certain places, a lot of places, actually, you see so much what you would think of as conflicting flags and signs and, you know, lots of like Trump 2024 or Trump's my president alongside QAnon, alongside Blue Lives Matter, alongside Don't Tread on Me signs, right? It is so much more visible now. I mean, we were visiting family at a, at a truck stop and there was a man in a Q shirt getting into his truck fighting with someone. And it was like, oh, wow. This is really, really hitting the mainstream in the way that everyone was afraid of in, in like 2017. I remember the first time Trump alluded to QAnon and everyone was like, oh, God, no, like, don't breathe any life into this. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And I think my fear is that because there are so many local elections and primaries and, and all these things is they are going to have lots of rallying points where, okay, we don't have the presidency, but we can take back our city council. And I think that's kind of what I'm afraid of is they are testing their organizing power and they're doing pretty well. I think that 
people often, we get so focused on federal elections that we forget how much actual power local and state elections have over our lives. And I think that if nothing else, this has been a great, if horrific civics lesson on how much it matters if you actually show up and vote in your local elections. Um, I, I think I think that's exactly right. Um, the proliferation of Q iconography is probably well outpaced people who actually have any idea what it means. Right? I think like all of the people who are like quietly hanging out on chat boards and doing this kind of stuff are probably feeling a lot more comfortable wearing it. But I also think that as an imagery, it has spread far beyond the original weird eschatological internet movement that it originally was, right? I, I think about this, like the proliferation of the Confederate flag into, into Union states, that it's, uh, it's a symbol of, of the Confederate flag, it's a symbol of racist treason, but people wear it as just like general counterculture. Um, of course, they wear it as general counterculture that is distinctly white supremacist counterculture. There is no way to fly the Confederate battle flag and not have that be your thing. But that's, that's the kind of aspect it's becoming where people who don't necessarily feel a strong attachment necessarily to the storm, thank God, uh, or have any idea what that means, thank God. Um, also feel very comfortable wearing this as like, you know, the, the, the standard of like revolution against the damn libs who we must own in the most in lame internet kind of sense. But I also think the fact that elected Republican officials keep willingly playing with this rhetoric and willingly associate themselves with the more presentable elements of QAnon and, and very much people who are very clearly part of QAnon, but not necessarily the ones who literally broke into the Capitol. The willingness to play around those edges gives it a huge amount of legitimacy as just a normative GOP faction. And that makes it much more dangerous because people who have really dangerous bad ideas are now part of the mainstreaming of this ideology. And I don't, I don't know what to do about it because the first rejection has to be elected public. like, you know what, we don't want anything to do with this, right? We're, you know, vote for us, I suppose, please stay, stay away. And they're not doing that. And that's, that's the part that scares me. In Iowa, um, the two the two moms in my town who are doing most of the anti-mask uh, organizing, who were at the Stop the Steal rally, who are going to like these Patriot Roundup things, uh, were also invited by the governor to be there when she signed the uh, the bill that banned mask mandates, that banned mandatory quarantining, that banned like a whole host of other basic public health measures. They were invited. They were standing next to her when she signed the bill. They campaigned with the person who just won the special election in my town alongside the tractor guy who was also at uh, January 6th and also play around with the fringes of QAnon affiliated language. Not really some of those phrases you could argue or just general phrases everyone uses, but like there's just enough where it's clear that people are more than happy to have this be in their photo ops with them and then just never address it. And that's, that's the part where you are passively mainstreaming incredibly dangerous ideas and acting like it's fine up until the point where it's not. And the question is, when do we, what is the final hurdle where some people, I mean, apparently it's not sedition and the violent attempt to overthrow Congress, right? Apparently like people breaking in, trying to find the vice president, not, not, you know, the stopping point. Um, you know, we're building a martyr complex with someone who is trying to break into the room where the vice president is, like climbing through a window that they've shattered and shot by, by you know, by, what, secret service? We don't know. That's apparently not too far. So where is, right? What, what becomes the line where you were the people who need to say, you need to stop this? When do they get to that point? Well, it's, it is alarming to see that play out during this pandemic where everyone's desire to go back to normal and pretend it wasn't happening resulted in hundreds of thousands of more deaths, right? So uh, I think that's the fear, right? Is, is if an unsuccessful coup didn't, didn't do anything, maybe we're waiting for the successful one. Uh, not to be, I, I mean, I'm being a bit extreme maybe, but hopefully, right? Like hopefully I'm being a little extreme here. Well, it, it's the rhetorical question, right? Like Obviously, on like, you know, December 31st, I said, no, that's too far. Um, but we're in a year where a lot of things that seemed impossible are happening anyway. Right. So what what now becomes too far, like a leap of, of 
effectively fear, right? Like what is, what is the next thing? Um, I really want to think that that is too far, that there, there will be another coup attempt. That's crazy. We don't do coup attempts in America. And apparently we do, right? I, I again, I, I like to think that it's the, the potent combination of just the general, all of it, but also like the president egging you on to do it. That leads to something like that. And that without a mouthpiece of the presidency telling you, you should literally like break into Congress and, and, you know, ask them what's up that you don't get that attempt again. But I just, I feel a lot less confident in the strength of our institutions than I did a year ago. And I hate that. But like January 6th, actually, like, even though it fails, January 6th was a huge deal. And I don't think it's ever overestimated its importance to the point of like, this was something that I never anticipated seeing in the United States. This is the thing America does to everyone else in the world, but I never expected to see it in the United States. And that's on me. Well, and I think it is interesting to see as time goes on, the kind of evolving responses, right? You know, this the 7th or 8th of January, there were a lot of pieces out uh, about what happened. And there, there was a quote from an FBI specialist of like, yeah, I had heard all the chatter, but like, look at these people. Like they, they belong to the same clubs I do. We even have the same bumper sticker. You don't expect this from people who are just like you. And it's like, so I think that's a unique thing to perhaps law enforcement, FBI agents, right? Because that group didn't look like most of America. And a lot of Americans have been afraid of this group for a long time. Uh, but contrast that to uh, this September when there was going to be action in D.C. and everybody mobilized. Nobody laughed it off. Nobody dismissed it. Law enforcement organizations, even militia groups were, were really active about like, let, hey, let's not let's not do anything in D.C. right now. So I, I am heartened to see that people are taking this a lot more seriously but I think the demographics of this group as quote unquote, the real Americans really, I don't know what, how to word this right, but the people in charge look a lot like the people in QAnon have a lot in common with the people in QAnon. And so I think we're really hesitant to take action. And I think now there's a lot of distancing unevenly in, in government and in these circles to respond. Well, some of it's, some of it's interesting the way we are very bad at discussing, we're very bad. Certain segments of the population are very bad at discussing the overlap between white nationalist groups and uh, members of law enforcement of the military. Some groups have been pointing it out forever. I listened to a lot of Rage Against the Machine in junior high and high school. I, we, we all know the famous lines that seem to imply that this is a long, uh, long-term thing. Um, it's also, I, I think that there was a degree of feeling of safety that the number of people flying back the blue flags and signs and bumper stickers that it felt like less immediate threat. Obviously the police are guarding the Capitol. You're not gonna come after the police. And then they did and people died uh, and more have died since. And if that, I don't want that to be what it, what it takes for this to be taken seriously, but I'm glad if nothing else that now it seems to be taken seriously. Uh, because I remember, you know, before that, what was it, the giant um, gun-toting militia rally in, was it Richmond, um, the year before uh, over gun control laws, where we had like images of just people carrying like, truly absurd firearms flooding the city to protest against gun control laws, uh, and the police just kind of stood off and let it happen. Or the same thing happening when militias would invade Portland, and people just kind of quietly watched as all these things were going down, or the fact that, like the Oath Keepers, who claimed that they represent a bunch of uh, veterans and police and things like that, are escorting neo-Nazis through the streets and things like that. But all of this, even though it wasn't performative and plenty of us are like, hey, this is bad, don't do this. Like when you're allowing them to process through public spaces like this, this is a power play. Like, don't do this, this is bad. Please don't let this happen. I suppose it just feels different than when they're actually like beating up police officers to break into a government building and all of a sudden like, oh, right. When they say they wanna overthrow the government, they also mean us. Oh, right. They're the bad guys. They're the bad guys. Yes. Let's do something about this. I just don't think there, I don't think any of us know what it is you actually can do about it beyond stopping them from physically marching into government buildings 
And that's the part, like, I, I don't have any suggestions for this. How do you, how do you de-radicalize a, a big enough segment of the population who's on social media advocating these things? I have no clue. But like a society-wide de-radicalization is, is necessary. Like, I can disagree with people about politics. and There could be a huge amount of ill will and none of us leaving thinking that, you know, one of these days, every member of the other party is going to be rounded up and hung and it's going to be a glorious eschatological moment where, you know, we will triumph against the deep state, right? Like, this, this is not a thought I have ever had in my life. And the fact that there was an organized online movement that is continuing to evolve and grow that does at its heart want this is not okay. So how do you how do you fix that? Like how do you fix that kind of malignancy in the heart of, of contemporary America? There's some good research that says de-escalation can happen. It usually doesn't happen online, right? It's when you reach out to your your aunt who's been, you know, posting about QAnon. It's reaching out to people when you can safely in real life. De-escalation online is, is a lot trickier. But it is like, as, as again, someone who studies these things and you're in the same boat, right? It is wild to go about your day and then check Twitter and be reminded that there are a not small portion of the population that wants you dead or executed. Uh, so that's like a fun place to be and do your work, right? It's, um, I don't know, it, it doesn't stop, it's obviously not stopping you from doing your work, but it is a strange place to be in uh, contemporary society. Well, and it's the fact that the two groups, the ones that you can de-escalate in by like actually just like, you see each other in person in the neighborhood and you talk and you remember that, oh, right, we all have kids and we all live in the same suburbs and like we're talking about Little League, right? The fact that that same kind of conversation you can have where you de-escalate and you remind each other of your shared humanity is then immediately mirrored by people on Facebook, like making unspeakable comments about you. And it's the same people who are simply divorcing the two aspects of your personality together because the internet is, is its own thing. And it's funny because like social media is a great way to build community. And this is how we know each other, right? This is, there are many positive parts of, of, of social media for like, you know, finding research and making community and making friendships and things like that. But like that same aspect also allows insidious conspiracy theory to spread. And it's the question of, you know, has social media made the country better or worse? And on the whole, the answer is not what I'd like it to be. And I don't know how you deal with the fact that the same people who you can like go out and grab a beer with and like you know, watch the game and eat some grilled meats and have like positive pleasant conversations with and then go online and then like we can all fight right how you can reconcile these two groups together as long as that online component is there and is the kind of hellacious free-for-all it is right i mean like people are like twitter's horrible because people are saying anonymous mean things about people it's like that's that's not the problem with twitter because people get on facebook and say those same things on their own name with a picture of them holding their children Right. Not that I'm not that I'm a saint about this. I warn every time every time I get an influx of new followers, I warn warn people that you know the, the content of my channel is topically a couple of things. And then I am not the person with the cleanest language on the internet. Right. But it's it's that dichotomy between the way we interact with each other and how that particular cognitive distance, worse even than like the we want to protect free speech, but only for us. Right. It's the way that people get different personalities online that is problematic. I think being on social media more than anything else has really opened my eyes to how many people I know, like literally know in real life, have just absolutely violent and murderous fantasies. There was someone that was absolutely delightful to me in person. Uh, we, we went to the same gym and I went to a protest and came home, opened Facebook, and he was posting about his fantasies of running protesters down with his car. And I was like, oh, oh, he wants to murder me, which is, I don't know how you go back into your community kind of knowing people have these violent ideas. And I haven't even faced the kind of backlash that you did for speaking at your school board hearing, right? So how do you go back and engage with your community after things like this? I think we need to remember the, the gender and racial dynamics here. I am a white, cisgender, heterosexual man with a permanent job. So I go back to my community by just moseying on into it the way white guys just mosing to any space they feel like at any given time, whether or not they should, right? That is, that is a very particular easy move for me where I simply can brush it off because I'm a white guy, 
this would not be the same if you change any of those factors, right? And also the abuse would be infinitely worse. Because what I do is I simply don't look it up on Facebook. And if people decide to start tagging me in things, I block them on social media and I unfriend people if it becomes an issue. And I can simply move on with my life from there. But that is that is very much because I am a white man with tenure. And that is great for me, but it's complete like this is the problem, right? I am I am in the least marginalized group in this country. And so I can just brush it off and move on with my life. Um, you know, next time we have one of these forums, I'm going to show up to it. It's going to be just fine. Next time they want public commentary on math mandates, yes, I'm going to show up to that to, to that forum, and I will make my comments and I will move on with my life. Um, you know, I went on private on Twitter long enough to like warn relevant people at my job, like, hey, this might be a thing, and then I felt like posting something on Main, so I just did. I just went off of private and just did, and and I can do that. And it's unfortunate because. You know, there are people who I know I disagree with politically who you see the people that they feel comfortable and happy to be friends with, or at least internet friends with. And that does change the way you think about them, right? I assume they feel the same way about me, right? We are people. I assume that seeing the things I write online and the comments I make and the things I publish and my commentary posting things fundamentally alters the way they, they view me. That's fine. Right. We're all human and, and we all, you know, we all have agency and we all get to choose who we do and do not interact with. Um, the part that bothers me more is that if you're going to judge me for my words, be nice if they're my unmediated words, as opposed to someone else's most aggressive, negative reading of it. The part I find ridiculous, of course, is that, you know, I'm very uncensoring my thoughts on Twitter because it's my private account and the First Amendment protects my rights because if we're going to complain about cancel culture, we need to start with the fact that if you have First Amendment rights and that's sort of thing, that, that complies to the people you don't like what they're saying too. I have some questions about that, but these are different questions than the people who are, who are hassling me uh, have. It's the part where you try to twist words, right? People can simply disagree with me and not like me. People can disagree. We can all disagree with each other. It would be nice if it were through open dialogue as opposed to what I think we have where it's two groups that are not actually speaking to each other, making assumptions about each other. Um, I am also guilty of this. We are all humans, we all do this. But I think it makes it impossible to have any kind of real healing in society in a moment that like we, it feels like we are all very far apart and existing in very different worlds. And that's a problem. It's okay to disagree, but it'd be nice if you're even talking to each other to have disagreements as opposed to closing ourselves off to never have those conversations. No, I think that is, I, I really do wish there could be more dialogue. I think that is how we de-radicalize, right? Some of, some of what's going on. And I, I think what you said about cancel culture is really interesting to me because the side of number one, cancel culture as a phenomenon, as my like disclaimer, 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 cancel culture is not necessarily a thing, not the way that people public, like not the way the public press depicts it as it's, it's not happening in mass. It's very rarely damaging people's careers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the aspect of it that is so rarely talked about is um, on my academic Twitter, I'm friends with or I'm following a lot of women of color who write about race, who write about sexism, who write about the intersections of race and sexism. And uh, they get death threats a lot. <laughs> um, and so a lot of them post through it, but how many scholars are, are we losing their public voice because they are not safe to talk, right? And how many more subtle forms of, uh, you know, grad students are encouraged not to tweet um, anything controversial because it might hurt their job ask, uh, prospects. So there's all kinds of silencing going on from, from allies and opponents. Um, and it hits so much differently depending on your own identity. Um, so I, I was glad that you, you talked about the piece about gender and race and job security. Because to me, that's the real threat to free speech, right? Is all the coercive measures people use to, to stop these conversations from happening. I think that's exactly it. I mean, it's always when people discuss cancel culture as a concept, they usually mean somebody said something 
horrifically offensive and then people want them to apologize for it and then they do a bad job and then people no longer want to buy their things. It tends to be white dudes um, because we have, because the culture. Um, for all of the reasons that unfortunately we have, we have built a society that is based on white people getting away with an awful lot of horrible stuff. Um, most of the people who seem really up in arms about, about the concept of camel culture didn't mind when Nicola Hannah-Jones was not offered tenure uh, <laughs> and then moved on to another job and I'm very happy for it. But like most people don't seem concerned about things like that where it is very clearly politically motivated, aggressively so, but that's not a problem, right? No one seems to object when it is already marginalized people being marginalized more. It is as with every dystopia, and I think this is what the mythos of, of cancel culture is, it's, it's just, you know, our, our light dystopia. Any good dystopia is simply the things that the dominant group has been doing to my, to marginalized populations suddenly gets done to the dominant group, right? 1984, you know, what, what if we were all being watched all the time and there's a police aid such process? Well, yes, George Orwell, you did in fact work as a police officer in uh, British Imperial Burma. You know exactly what this is like. It's why it's such a clever thing. Right, Handmaid's Tale, where you simply do a mishmash of historical things together, but now apply them to white upper class women too. Right, these are very specific things, drawing on historical roots of what are happening to other groups already. Um, and I think I cancel culture wasn't discussed until it started being white men having to, you know, actually deal with the consequences of their actions. But now it's a thing, and now we're mad about it. It's so fascinating because the origins of the term is number one, it's, it's AAV and it's about not letting that person take up headspace anymore. Like this person has done something offensive. Okay. They are erased from my mind. I'm not going to think about them again. I'm not engaging with their work anymore. And so there's also this degree of entitlement, like, well, I'm famous and I deserve to keep being famous and I deserve to have no one say anything bad about me and you should buy all my stuff, right? Like that nobody's owed that. That's no, no, there's no right to being a consumable product and not having any adverse reactions to your work. And so it's not about being silenced at all. It's about, oh man, this person's trash. I'm moving on. And so this idea that, well, everyone should think about me the way that I want to be thought about. And that is my right is, is bonkers. Yes, absolutely that. And I mean, as, as we notice, unless they've committed an actual crime, and are consequently paying for the actual crimes they committed that they were getting away with until they stopped. Most of these people are doing just fine and are doing come like went away for six months, now launching a massive comeback tour, right? Or quietly disappeared from the public eye and kept doing their jobs, right? Um, it is it is the difference between like normal consequences. I mean, no, that's all it is. It's consequences for your actions, right? And if people were like, you know what? I screwed up. I screwed up really badly. I'm really sorry about this thing that I did because we all have things that we have done that are wrong that you know we may or may not get to apologize to in public because people may not want to hear from us ever again. You move on like an adult. That's the thing, right? It's the part where I shouldn't have to ever apologize for the things I said. You should just get over it. I'm sorry I offended you. No, I, I'm, I'm sorry I did this thing. That was, that was shitty of me and I should not have done this thing. That's a very different conversation. And I feel like what cancel cultures becomes like, well, why, why should you ever have to apologize for the hurt you've caused? Shouldn't it just be fine that you have hurt people if you are powerful? And that's, that's the problem. And so using the rhetoric of cancel culture is always weird because the people who seem most intent on using it are not the people who are having any like actual issues with their fame and their power and their influence. And then it is used by people who have never had that power to describe a societal phenomenon that doesn't exist. And then of course, while they're simultaneously decrying this, it's like, but how can we actually like cancel these other people? Right. I, I do love the companion pieces of call this man's work, get him fired. And isn't cancel culture a real shame? And it is, uh, you know, it's one of those things where if you assume ideological, like consistency is not, doesn't matter, then it's not hypocritical, right? It's just use whatever's in the mainstream culture to advance whatever your interests are at the time. Um, and I think once you move on from like, oh, isn't it silly that they're contradicting each other, right? Like they don't care. Like it's not worth like analyzing it because th they don't care. 
Well, and of course, with, with just the layer of plausible deniability that we never said you should do anything. We're just reporting the facts. We totally don't know how the internet works. No, it's a fascinating time to be an academic because I think the distinction between public and private academic doesn't, doesn't exist anymore, right? Like it used to be a, a public sociologist would go out and engage with the public, however that means. But now, I mean, almost everyone needs to have a Twitter or is encouraged to have some kind of online presence so people can find your work. And people engaging with your work often means trolls engaging with your work. And so it's almost like a prerequisite of the job to think about like, well, what happens if this tweet goes viral? You know, how will this impact my my work? Or what if this article gets picked up? What what will the backlash be? I'm doing some prep right now to, you know, if, if people in the press want to talk about my work, you know, what do I need to do? What do I need to know? And it's complicated because I study reproductive rights and freedoms. So there's, there's a whole lot of people that don't care for that. And so what does it mean if I start taking this work on the road? So it's just a lot more considerations. And that burden does disproportionately fall on particularly women of color uh, and non-binary folks, right, of, of this extra layer of can I do the research I want to do? Can I talk about the research I want to talk about? And what am I going to do if and when there are death threats in my inbox? And, and of course, the reality is that you're more likely to get them than if I were saying the same things, right? And there, and there isn't a good answer, right? Um, because how even on a legal basis, even if you had the time and the energy and the money to pursue legal avenues against everyone, given the way online targeted harassment as a concept, if not as a legal uh, term spreads, there is not a great mechanism to stop people from just making generalized death threats against you or, or even vague threats that certainly mean you harm, but don't do it. And so what do you do? Do you just delete all of them? Um, even that is fairly privileged because again, I don't by and large fear for my safety when I go out and about, but that is a very privileged position to be in. Um, I don't think universities are equipped to deal with, you know, members of their, of their community being harassed in this way. Um, I, don't, I don't think society at large it really firmly grasps how quickly internet outrage mobilized itself to genuinely dangerous and scary threats from people who like probably would never have thought to email like random strangers horrible things otherwise feel very comfortable like emailing really vile things to people uh you know on their lunch break hanging out minding their own business quietly advocating shooting school board members which ended up in the comments on tiktok videos of the Yankee school board meeting um from people who were not very clever in, in hiding their tracks and you know I'm not going to say names because that is toxic and you don't do that. But like people who like were very easy to find who they were saying this and discover that they weren't like, you know, next door. And so probably wasn't, wasn't, I know, you know, probably wasn't a direct threat, but people feel very comfortable with things like this in ways like you really want them not to, right? You really want people to think, should I say this horrifically violent thing? No, of course I shouldn't say this horrifically violent thing. I should just be like quietly angry in my own head or like, I don't know, get a journal, right? Talk to a friend about how you're feeling inside. And the internet uh, instead takes every political disagreement and allows it selectively to be amped up well into the like horrific 80s action film zone of like, no, what we need is we need blood. We need blood everywhere. This is the way to rectify this problem with, with long out violence scenes in a way that is so societally deeply problematic and unhealthy and also on an individual level, I mean, really terrifying when you have to worry that anything you say in any public space could be used against you. Yeah, and I, I will say having been a woman on the internet for as long as I've had internet access, it, you really can't predict what's gonna set someone off. I mean, there is such a high degree of randomization to it, right? Something that I think is innocuous might might set someone off in a way that some of my more, but I. I got a QAnoner yelling at me because I posted a picture of me skydiving. And I was like, oh, because he was like, oh, you're going to wear a mask for safety, but you'll jump out of a plane, like make it make sense. And I was like, what a weird, what a, what a bizarre thing to have triggered that. Right. And so to, to some extent, uh, that kind of freed me up, like, you know what, I think I can, I can go a little bit harder online because it really doesn't matter what I say, but, but it is 
grim. I think it's just grim to realize how many people feel comfortable or worse, genuinely harbor these kind of homicidal feelings. Like, cause either they're doing it to blow off steam or they genuinely feel like this. And that isn't great. And you know what? Neither is great, right? Like it, it's, it's, it is of course much worse if Thomas Hobbes is right. And that the, and that all that the internet has shown us is that actually we are all genuinely monsters just held in check by the very thin veneer of society. And I like to hope that he's not, but it's also not great if our society has made it so normal to, to, you know, our form of relaxation is uh, threatening violence to strangers on the internet because, you know, otherwise it's uh, violent sports or violent video games or violent movies or violent music that we've just simply so ingrained violence as normative in our society through all of our media and pastimes. Like, oh yeah, you know, what, what, what did you do this week? Oh, you know, I threatened to murder some strangers on the internet and then I played around in golf. It's also not good not worse than everyone secretly being a serial killer waiting, waiting to be unleashed, but like not good. I will say, I think in my own personal non-scientific estimate for every one troll or misogynist online, I think there are 15 people just there for animal videos and there may be some overlap. I'm sure homicidal people still like animal videos, but I think that it has been such a space of genuine connection for so many people that I'm not hopeless about the internet. I am concerned. (laughs) I am keeping an eye on it, but I think, you know, that there's so much interesting content creation going on and so many like wonderful small creators that I'm not giving up on it yet. I think the the thing for me is that yeah, I think it's a much higher percentage than 115. I'd say probably one in 100 people on social media are trolls. Another 90 of them started a Twitter account and then have not logged in since the first month. And then the other nine are just really wanting you to uh, hold up your cat in the middle of the Zoom lecture so they can see your cat, which is fine, right? Like, like that's a fine way to use the internet. Um, I think the problem is that we actually do know that social media could like just stop it, right? They could literally just kick out all of the murder trolls. One of the reasons that really this is this has been a, a kind of very significant experience. I mean, again, you follow me on you, you follow me on Twitter. The things I say on Twitter are things that you would expect me to get troll swarmed more often, all things considered. Um, but I also like I, I've set my country setting to France and France and Germany filter out the Nazis, right? And and imagine that I consequently don't Sorry, get swarmed to Nazis. Yeah. It's an option. You just you just set it to to European things, and then it just I don't get Nazis in my mentions. And what does that mean? Well, it kind of suggests that uh, maybe, just maybe, Twitter could do this everywhere and could simply make the choice to not allow you to be harassed by Nazis. That's grim. That should I mean it should piss you off. It should piss all of us off that that it's simply that easy that you could just not. Well, and this, you know, uh, YouTube, TikTok, a lot of apps and platforms are now banning all vaccine misinformation. And a lot of, again, like women of color activists and other people of color have pointed out that they've been begging these platforms to do something similar with the racist content. And the fact that they have been able to do this the whole time and haven't is a conscious choice. They are choosing not to moderate this this kind of uh, uh, vitriol. And in part, because it's about attention economies, right? It's it's about outrage. Outrage is the business model. Uh, And that means the occasional user might get a ton of death threats, but that's just how we make our money, I guess. It will. And this, this is the part that we should all be really angry about. Like, you know, every, every time they introduce a new feature, look, you can, you can monetize spaces or look, you have 240 characters. And we're like, well, what if, what if you got rid of the Nazis? And like, to the point where it's become a meme of like, this is great, Jack, but what if we got rid of the Nazis? That shouldn't be a meme. You should just get rid of the Nazis, right? This, this is actually the reasonable request. If there is a way that you filter them out in countries that demand, by law that you filter them out and you want to use those markets so you built a filter to get rid of the worst of them why are you not doing this everywhere and that's that's the part that that you know it's social media is not neutral tech is not neutral the policies in place are certainly not neutral and it is a deliberate choice to allow 
uh, swarms of Nazis, other white supremacists, and a whole host of other things. So, man, I, I want to be mindful of your times. I could talk about tech all day. So, where can where can people find your recent work uh you just had something come out about uh history and gaming so that's fun uh which is a fun area i have uh, a new article out on the age of revolutions online journal uh about assassin's creed uh and french revolution conspiracy theories um i had a piece out in the bulwark a couple weeks back uh on how QAnon is coming for your school boards which Yes, uh, you know, the, the, part, the parts where I'm right are not the parts where you want to be right. I, I am active on Twitter at T. Lecoq, uh, and I'm also the only Thomas Lecoq in the world. So if you Google something and it says it's written by me, it is in fact written by me. All right. Well, hopefully everyone will uh, go follow you on Twitter. They can see what everyone's up in arms about. <laughs> uh, and they, can make, uh, they can make other choices too for their own sake. <laughs> Well, it's always great to have you on. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me back.